Welcome to Trinity Forum Conversations. I'm your host and president of the Trinity Forum, Cherie Harder. It's Holy Week, and this is our final podcast in our special Lenten series. This week, we're considering the meaning of the good news, viewed through the lens of Scripture with an emphasis on Christ's passion and triumph at Easter. To help us explore the spiritual discipline of reading Scripture, we're returning to an evening conversation we hosted back in 2016 with Anglican Bishop and New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. Since the very earliest days of the Christian Church, the reading of Scripture has been foundational for Christian formation. But rather than prescribe a particular methodology of Bible reading this week, our invitation is simply to join us in reading each of the four Gospel accounts of Jesus' last days but to do so with a refreshed understanding of what Jesus meant when he spoke of the good news. As N.T. Wright makes clear, Jesus' good news wasn't about giving advice or founding a new religion, or even where a soul goes when the body dies. Jesus was inviting his hearers into a new way of understanding Israel's ancient story and the cosmic significance of its sudden fulfillment. It's our hope that this conversation will help you read slowly, thoughtfully, and to consider and savor aspects of this good news that you may have missed before. Thank you for journeying with us through Lent. We wish you a very happy Easter. With that, here's today's conversation. When Jesus began his public career, he claimed to be announcing good news. Many Christians today, I find, have not really reflected on what that means, either what news itself actually is or what Jesus' good news might have been. Richard and I rather wanted to call this event Reading the News with Jesus, since, despite some disagreement on details, as biblical scholars committed to the life of the church, we both want to hold together the two things reflected in that title. First, we must constantly refresh our vision of what Jesus himself meant when he spoke about good news. And this is why history matters, not to invent a new Jesus, but precisely to stop ourselves inventing a new one by forgetting or distorting or ignoring what his original good news actually was. And at the same time, second, as Christians, we are called to look at today's world with spirit-led and Jesus-focused eyes, to be reading the news with Jesus in the sense of looking at current events and asking the question, what would Jesus say about this? And hence, what should we, his followers, be saying and doing about it? And that gives you the framework for what we want to do tonight, however briefly, to read in the four Gospels what Jesus' own good news was and to try in the light of that to glimpse something of a Jesus-shaped vision of a good life in and for today's and tomorrow's world. So first, Jesus' own good news. What is news exactly? Many people, including many Christians, assume that Jesus came to give advice to tell people how to live, how to go to heaven, how to pray, how to establish a personal relationship with God. Some people talk as if Jesus came to found a new religion. Now, there are grains of truth in all that, but they all miss the central point, the news itself. There's all the difference in the world between news and advice. The point about news is that something is happening as a result of which everything's now going to be different. 
the baby has been born safely. Good news. The surgery has been successful. Wonderful news. The student has won the scholarship. A whole new world is opening up. Something has happened which unveils a new future and which then generates an interim time between the event itself and that ultimate future. The baby will be taken home and will grow up. The patient is still weak but will convalesce and return to normal. The pupil must now prepare for an exciting academic career and so on. News generates a new moment of time. Now, there's a word of warning here. Christians today are easily conned by the rhetoric of the Enlightenment according to which nothing really changed with Jesus, except for a new possibility of a present spirituality and an ultimate disembodied salvation. The world stayed much the same. That is a lie. Too many Christians have colluded with it. If you want an interesting read on this, read John Ortberg's book, Who Is This Man?, remarkable exposition of what the church has done through the centuries precisely because everything in fact changed with Jesus. So what news was Jesus announcing? The news is rooted in Israel's scriptures, not least in Isaiah 40 to 55. And the good news there and in subsequent Jewish expectation, particularly in Daniel, is that Israel's God, Yahweh, is at last taking his power and reigning. God is becoming king. The Psalms speak of this, heaven and earth rejoice because Yahweh is claiming his throne, reigning over the nations, doing justice and mercy. This is crystal clear in Isaiah 52. God will overthrow the pagans and rescue his people. He will return to Jerusalem in person and in power to fill the temple with his glory. This is then filled out in Daniel in large-scale expansions of Psalm 2. The nations will rage, but Israel's God will take charge and will install his appointed son as the world's rightful Lord, and through him he will call the nations to account. Plenty of Jews in Jesus' day were longing for this to happen. There was no one-size-fits-all pattern of expectation, but rather a set of swirling possibilities, always with the scriptural narrative reaching its climax. The long story would arrive at its goal. The powers of the world would be overcome, and God would take charge of the world in a whole new way. And Jesus' message of good news was that precisely this was now taking place. When he healed people, this was what it meant. God was taking charge in a new way. When he celebrated with the down and outs and the ne'er-do-wells, this was what it meant. This your brother was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. Resurrection is happening under your noses, even if you can't see it. That's why Jesus spoke of the renewed heart, promised in scripture, and now it seems available because he was there. This is why Jesus called 12 special followers, signaling that God was renewing his people Israel. This is why he challenged the rich and the powerful and constantly focused on the poor. God was putting the world the right way up at last. And this was in particular why Jesus told parables. Because his message again and again was, the kingdom of God is arriving, but it's not like you thought it was going to be. 
The parables are redefining the kingdom as only stories can, inviting Jesus' hearers into a new way of understanding Israel's ancient story and its sudden fulfillment. But here we have a particular problem. Modern Western Christians, on being told that Jesus redefined Jewish expectations, usually assume that this means he was rejecting political or this-worldly Jewish meanings and offering spiritual or heavenly ones instead. This is simply wrong. When Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world, the Greek makes it clear that he means that his kingdom is not from this world, ektu kosmututu. The kingdom has its origin elsewhere, but its destination is precisely for this world. That's why the Lord's Prayer prays, thy kingdom come on earth as in heaven. But how? Jesus' answer, the, the key to the good news and the good life, is the radical redefinition of power itself. The rulers of this world, he said, get what they want by bullying people and tyrannizing them. But he says, we're going to do it the other way. Because the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus drew together kingdom texts from Isaiah and Daniel and elsewhere, not to say that power was irrelevant or that the only thing that mattered was what would happen to you after you died, something he hardly ever mentioned, by the way, but to insist that the kingdom would come through the all-conquering power of self-giving love. The way the Gospels tell the story and the way Jesus himself conceived of this kingdom movement, it was all pointing to the cross. The kingdom means what it means in the light of the cross, and conversely, Jesus' crucifixion means what it means because it is the ultimate kingdom moment. It's the moment when Israel's God, having returned in person, defeats the powers of darkness and launches upon the world the new way of being human. Jesus chose Passover as the key moment to declare in symbol and parable that the temple was now redundant, that his followers were the spearhead of the rescued people of God, and that his own death would deal with Israel's ancient sins and thus undo their elongated exile once and for all. Jesus would give himself as the ransom for many. And you can see him doing it throughout his public career and then supremely on the cross so that by dealing with sin, he robs the unseen satanic powers of their power. And the resurrection then follows because death itself has been defeated, because sin itself has been defeated, which is why the resurrection is the launching of the new creation. This is the good news, the news which Jesus announced, the news which the four Gospels are telling us about Jesus. And don't be fooled by the sneer of the skeptic who says that, well, Jesus spoke about God, but then the church spoke about Jesus, as though the church is just making up a bit of Christology to fill a gap. No, the whole point is that Jesus was telling stories about what Israel's God was doing in order to explain what he himself was doing. At the heart of Jesus' vision was the healing of creation, flooding the world with justice and joy as the waters cover the sea. 
and at the heart of Jesus' vocation was the faith awareness that he was himself embodying the returning and reigning God of whom he spoke. But again, there's a problem for us today. We've grown up under the shadow of 18th century skeptics who say that, well, Jesus wasn't divine and that there isn't a life after death. And so we have been lured into the trap of supposing that the Gospels were written, A, to prove that Jesus was divine, and B, to prove that he is leading the way to an otherworldly life after death. Not so. The Gospels presuppose that Jesus is embodying Israel's God, returning in strange, self-giving power. That is the key in which the music is written, but it isn't the tune that's being played. The tune itself is that in and through Jesus, the one true God is becoming king on earth as in heaven. And the ultimate life after death is not a platonic disembodied immortality, but resurrection life in God's new creation. And that new world began when Jesus came out of the tomb on Easter morning. That's the good news. Something happened then as a result of which the world is a different place. And we are summoned not just to enjoy its benefits, but to take up our own vocations as new creation people, as spirit-filled and spirit-led Jesus followers, bringing his kingdom into reality in our world. As I say that, one caution before we can proceed. God remains sovereign over the kingdom. God builds God's kingdom in God's way. We don't build the kingdom by what we do here and now. But don't let that rob you of the New Testament vocation. We are called to build for the kingdom, to do things here and now, which by the Spirit participate in the work of new creation as genuine signs and foretastes of God's new world, as true signposts, as advance symbols of the kingdom which God himself will one day make. That's where the sacraments come in. That's where feeding the hungry and welcoming the stranger come in. This is where justice and mercy locally and globally come in. This is the good life. This is the formation of new creation people. And this is where the church in the Acts of the Apostles comes in. When the disciples asked Jesus whether this was the time for him to restore the kingdom to Israel, his answer, just as in the parables, was, yes, but not in the way you think. You will receive the Spirit's power, and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. The kingdom which was decisively inaugurated in Jesus must be taken forward with the same methods of prayer and love and the word of God into all the world. Jesus said, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. We Western Christians are usually quite comfortable about thinking that Jesus has all authority in heaven. We've hardly begun to think about what it might mean that he has all authority on earth. So where might this take us for today? As we think about this Jesus and then about today's news and what our good life might look like in that context, there are two obvious mistakes to avoid. 
on the one hand, it won't do to say that, well, we're going off to heaven quite soon, so today's news doesn't really matter. It's just sort of surface noise and irrelevant. It won't do to say that. On the other hand, nor will it do to say that, well, Daniel and Ezekiel and Revelation give us a 21st century roadmap for end-time events in the Middle East, and all we've got to do is decode the symbols and wait for Armageddon or the rapture. <laughs> Those two views often reinforce one another. But the genuine Christian vocation is quite different. Jesus urged his contemporaries to read the signs of the times, to think wisely about the state of the world and what God's kingdom would mean. And we must do the same. In particular, we must recognize that all human systems of government, including the various types of democracy, stand under God's judgment and mercy. God is in charge through Jesus. But here's the point which we often get wrong. God always wanted to run the world through image-bearing human beings, whether or not they acknowledge him. It's the foundation of a Christian political theology. God wants there to be human authorities because anarchy is always even worse than tyranny. But what matters is not whether somebody has achieved a majority vote in whatever system and by whatever means, what matters is what they then do when they're in office. The ancient Greeks and Romans often put public officials on trial at the end of their term because they knew that an election wasn't enough. It didn't validate everything this person would subsequently do. Doing justice and mercy in office is what counts. And this is where the calling of the church comes in. It isn't enough simply to talk of faithful presence, as my good friend James Davison Hunter has done. Faithful presence is vital, and James is its most eloquent exponent that I know. It's non-negotiable, but it's just the first step. And I've said this to him, it's a conversation we have. Jesus said, <laughs> Jesus said that when the Spirit comes, the Spirit will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And the way the Spirit will do that is through the witness of the church. Here we have a problem. Because the media have taken that task to themselves, the task of holding governments to account. And they warn the church off the patch because they're now claiming it as their own. But those who follow Jesus must stand on that patch, however uncomfortably, and learn again, painfully as it may be, to speak the truth to power. Jesus' conversation with Pontius Pilate in John 18 and 19, which focuses on kingdom and truth and power, that must be our model in whatever system we live, adapting our methods, though not our ultimate message, to the different situations we face. This applies, as you know, in a thousand different ways. Christians have, in fact, been doing all this since the beginning, caring for the poor and the sick, advancing education, reminding rulers of their proper tasks. That's often happened under the radar, but it has transformed the world. Don't be fooled by the 18th century rhetoric according to which Constantine falsified the original message. I know it's very easy in your beloved great country to imagine that getting rid of kings like George III was the thing you had to do. Um, <laughs> No, Jesus really did transform the world. But Jesus did that not by sending in the tanks, but by sending in the meek, the justice-hungry people, the peacemakers, and so on. That's how it's done.
Anyway, perhaps the most urgent need right now, I'm nearly finished, is to recognize the folly of Western politicians and media when faced with the so-called Arab Spring four or five years ago. We were simply parroting the normal Western narrative. Get rid of tyrants and peace, love and liberal democracy and perhaps flower power will spring up automatically. So we helped them get rid of a few tyrants and now we are reaping the whirlwind. And we can't look on at the refugees washing up on our shores and say it was all their own fault. It wasn't. It was partly, not totally, but partly our fault. We were following a false, idolatrous narrative. We urgently need to read the news with Jesus, to have our characters, our judgments, our thinking and speaking formed and transformed by his good news. And this is where, to return to our title, the good news generates and sustains the good life. We are to read the news with the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount, the Jesus who fed the hungry, the Jesus who gave his life as a ransom for many, and not to forget, the Jesus who, as a helpless infant, was himself an asylum seeker, a fugitive from tyranny, the incarnate son carrying the love of God even then into the places where the world was in pain. As Jesus himself was fond of saying, if you have ears, then hear. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on this special Lenten podcast series, Exploring the Spiritual Practices. To listen to this or any of our conversations in full, please visit our website at ttf.org.